They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo music. You got the right black gay on the right damn day. Say, you got the right black gay on the right fucking day. Hey, Craig's Pop Life, show you right, get your life. Craig's Pop Life, show you right, get your life. Craig's Pop Life, show you right, get your life. Craig's Pop Life, show you right, get your life. What's up, what's up, what's up, people? What's up? Are you ready for this week's show? Are you ready for this week's show? Welcome, welcome, welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I am your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I'm a longtime music journalist, a music journalist, long time from back in the 90s, bitch. That would be somebody, if I was on, I think I said it before, if I was on, if I was on a reality show, that's what somebody would say. You were a journalist, but you were a journalist from back in the 90s. So I own it. You can catch up my on my work on rnbeing.com. I'm also an author. You can catch my books in print. You can catch them on an ebook, and you can get the audio version. Um... My biography, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. If you need to ask who that is, you probably shouldn't be listening to this show. Uh, my memoir about being a stripper hoe in grad school, All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C., my hometown. Um, my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love. Who's your daddy? Now, I know y'all are getting ready. You're getting your reading list ready for the good old Memorial Day weekend. I remember Black Pride Weekend in D.C. I miss them Banneker Field days. But I know y'all getting your reading list together. So please put my book on your reading list. I think you will find it funny and moving and what you need for a nice little vacation read, you know. Um, So anyway, and you can also get in line for my forthcoming special, A Critical Meditation on the Life and Artistry of Janet Jackson, coming whenever I finish editing the damn thing, which is taking longer than I expected, but, you know, it is what it is, bitch, put it on your Christmas list. No, I'm fucking around, but, you know, <laughs> we have much sooner than that. But I'm just not announcing no more dates. I'm just going to Beyonce the shit and just put it out and it'll be out when it's out. Um, but I'm working on it every single day. So, you know, that's that. So anyway, let's get into the news of the week. I, I not apologize for last week, but I was in my feelings a little bit last week. But no more sad bitch this week. I'm back. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, And I want to start with Monday's Met Gala, which got a lot of attention on the social medias. A lot of people were talking about it. Um, The first Monday in May is always one of my most anticipated days of the year to see all the fashions, to see all the looks. But this year was something different and got a lot of folks talking because of the camp theme and how various celebrities interpreted it. Now, there were a lot of problems with the theme from the get-go. And I'm going to go through them. But, like, well, I'm sorry. There were a lot of problems with the interpretations of the themes. A lot of people didn't like what they were seeing. But um, I think that the problem was just the theme itself. So let's just start backtrack and um, go back to the beginning. Because the theme was Camp Notes on Fashion, 
which was inspired by Susan Sontag's famous essay, Notes on Camp. Now, that's problem number one for me, okay? Because that means that the whole event was kind of founded on Columbusing. Because Susan Sontag was a white woman, that she had many relationships with women in her life, including photographer Annie Leibovitz, but she only even admitted to being bisexual in 1995. She died about 10 years later. So no, Susan Sontag did not invent camp. She discussed it. I mean, she discovered it like Columbus, and then she discussed it in her essay. And of course, the camp sensibility got a lot of attention at the time um, because she was a famous writer. But my thing was like, most of the Met themes have been inspired directly by the source material, you know, directly by the thing itself, not by somebody writing about the thing. You know what I'm saying? So, like, last year's was Fashion and the Catholic Imagination. It wasn't nobody's book about Catholicism, especially somebody who wasn't even Catholic. It was just fashion in the Catholic, in the Catholic imagination. You know, to, excuse me, y'all. <coughs> the, my allergies got me shook. God damn. Hold on for a moment, second. <coughs> So then in 2016, it was fashion in an age of technology. Again, not nobody, not based upon nobody writing about fashion in the age of technology. It was just the theme. So it really bothered me from jump that camp, a gay aesthetic, had to come into the Met by sort of getting the seal of approval by this white woman who observed the phenomenon from a distance. So to me, that was kind of red flag number one. And then there's the whole issue of defining camp and how it sort of translates into a mainstream institution like the Met. So for me, the Sontag essay isn't really one of my favorite um, essays on camp. One of my favorites is um, by a gay film critic, Richard Dyer, and it's called It's Being So Camp As Keep It. It's being so camp as keeps us going. And it was actually published in a porn magazine, um, Play Guy, back in 1977. But, you know, if you go back through all those old, even straight sort of um, porn mags but, and gay porn mags and all that kind of stuff, but I think especially gay porn mags, you see a lot of articles. This was in 1977. You see a lot of articles that deal with social issues because if you think about it, it wasn't like there were... 10 million gay publications that people could be writing about and you know how people are you know if you have five dollars to spend on something are you gonna buy the real you know mainstream gay newspaper maybe you should you should have because that supports the community or is you gonna try to get you some dick pics and maybe while you're flipping through the dick pics or after you've done flipping through the dick pics and you're kind of over the the dick pics if you're like me, the only but so many times you can look at the same thing. You need to move on to a new magazine or type you in some new something into Pornhub. Um, then you might discover you a nice article. And in this case, they really got um, you know pe people that were great writers and um, intellectuals to write these articles. And I'll put a link up um, a link up to the dire essay on the Craig's Pop Life website, and that ain't nothing but craigspoplife.com. I paid that good money for that domain, so y'all use it, because it's easy and simple. So anyway, um, Dyer's read is that camp is a sensibility more than it is something that can just be encapsulated into one 
or in Lady Gaga's case, like four unnecessary ass outfits. You know, it's a way of seeing something. It's a lens with, with which to view the world. And Dyer argues that camp, for queer people, is a celebration of form over content as a strategy for physical and psychological protection. Now, y'all are like, what you talking What is you talking about? Well, let me tell you. Okay, so, like, I'm just going to say queers because I think some gays is, can be, you know, it's sort of, not sort of, but, you know, it, it's, it's a sexist term in a way because it's really just making gay men seem like they're the norm. So I'm just going to say queers because I ain't saying LGBTQIA plus every damn time. So queers have had to become accustomed, have become obsessed with image because we often need to adopt certain images in order to disguise ourselves. That is something which a lot of gay people have had to do. And it's sort of like if you look at the history of the gay um, liberation movement, it's the people that were less able to describe disguise themselves like maybe they were more effeminate or more more naturally effeminate more naturally flamboyant um or like in the lesbian case like more butch or something like that that couldn't disguise themselves that they were often on the forefront because of that because there was nothing they could do but other people could kind of disguise themselves and try not to get clocked and we know that getting clocked is still a very serious issue that often leads to violence um as the murder of two dozen transgender people last year, I think it's one of the um, like one of the highest years since the figures have been recorded. So we know that that is definitely an issue. And Dyer writes, because we had to hide gayness for so much of the time, we had to master the facade of whatever social setup we found ourselves in. We couldn't afford to stand out in any way for it might give the game away about our gayness. So we have developed an eye and an ear for surfaces, appearances, forms, style. Small wonder, then, that we have come to develop our own culture. The habit of style should have remained a dominant, it should have remained so dominant in it. So it's style, it's like we know what masculinity looks like. We know the we don't accept stuff as natural. We know, like you see through Paris is Burning and Pose and everything like that, but we know that at the end of the day, these things are just looks, and these looks are the things that allow society to accept you as this or that. Just like RuPaul says, you know, we all wake up naked and the rest is drag. That is camp, That is the camp sensibility in one statement. Um, secondly, Dyer's... Um, talks about camp as being a um child I can't talk today. I need another I need a sip of my Red Bull. I'm drinking a Red Bull tonight. Hold on. It's two fifty three AM, so I need a little a little jolt. Um but that's another brand of energy engineering. Isn't it jolt something? Anyway, I'm drinking Red Bull. Sugar free. Ten calories per can, twelve ounces. But um anyway, Dyer's saying that camp is a psychological tool that we've had to use in order to see ourselves as having value in a world that doesn't often agree with the basic ass fact that we have value just for simply being us and just being children of God on this earth or just existing if you don't believe a God or whatever, but we have intrinsic value. So another quote from Dyer, 
Um, camp can make us see that what art and the media give us are not the truth or reality, but fabrications, particular ways of talking about the world, particular understandings and feelings of the way life is. It stops us thinking that those who create the landscape of culture know more about our lives than we do ourselves. A camp appreciation of art and the media can keep us on our guard against them. And considering their view of gayness and sexuality in general, that's got to be a good thing. So that is so true. I mean, I think um, as queer children, I mean, knowing that our truth is not the truth that we see reflected in mainstream media around us, we automatically start to see that separation, start to see that that that's an image, that's not the truth, because it's not the truth that we feel inside. Where if you're just a member of the mainstream culture, you're just seeing a reflection of who you are, what it is, you know, it's all good. It's a one-on-one kind of thing. But we know something we see on the screen, something about the way that relationships are defined, something about um, Jack and Jill, you know, well, where Harry at? Because my Jack wants to be with Harry or whatever, or Archie, or who has it be, you know. So we know, even in those little nursery rhymes, we know that something about us can't just fit right into that slot, right? So um, then the question when we come to the Met Gala is like, how does this translate into fashion? And basically it does and it doesn't because, and it does in the sense that high fashion is already oriented around style, which means um, it's already oriented around style over content or function. So high fashion in itself is a sort of camp endeavor because, you know, ain't nobody walking down the street in a 12 foot train. You know what I'm saying? Like, high fashion is not meant for for function it is purely existent upon style and so in that way it that high fashion in itself embodies camp and i think there's no surprise that that's why so many high fashion designers are queer because that comes from that sensibility so the met gala in itself is inherently camp that's why i love watching the red carpet shit every single year it's inherently camp because it's basically about it's a theater of impossibly rich and famous people dressed up in outfits that have absolutely no functional value outside of wearing them to the met gala what can be more camp than that what can be more camp than a bunch of rich and famous people dressing up just for the purpose of dressing up that is facade personified right so I thought it was a fail right there because you can't camp up something that is already inherently camp. You know, it would have been camp enough if they just did what they already did. But trying to make a camp event camp, that was a recipe for failure. So I think they just it, they got got off the block wrong. You know what I mean? Like that was it, it just was sort of an impossibility to do and it it really but it makes sense that the mainstream would do that because the mainstream does not think of itself in surfaces the mainstream just thinks it's real so you know the fashionistas and everything think that they can do camp when they don't realize it's like bitch you've been camp all the time how you gonna do camp when you are camp you've been camp but see they don't see that you know what i'm saying so that was a fail right up front um and 
from there, they, there was really absolutely no chance um, in that kind of event to do another aspect of camp, which is to sort of parody or critique what is valued as mainstream. Because all of the attendees at the Met fucking Gala have achieved some sort of mainstream accomplishment, whether through beauty, talent, race privilege, money, whatever. They can't be implicated in a critique of the mainstream because they is the mainstream. They are the most mainstreams of the mainstreams. Do you know what I mean? Down to the fact that the guests at the Met Gala, Met Gala literally have to be approved by Anna Winter, the head of American Vogue, which is the most mainstream fashion magazine of all. So that whole social critique aspect of camp, that whole camp is like, looking back, and camp is like a person you know, that's marginalized from society, looking at somebody that that isn't marginalized in society and going, I see you, bitch. I see you, bitch. I see you. I know that underneath all them baubles, underneath all that, that dresses, underneath all that hairs, underneath all them eyelashes, underneath all them shoes, underneath all of that, bitch, we are the same. I see you. That's the critique in camp. But that can't happen if... You don't have the marginalized person looking at the person that is um, so-called valued more than others in society. It it just doesn't work. Um, So those were the issues that I was going into it with from jump. You know, so I thought the whole shit was doomed from the start. And it did turn out to be, you know, entirely underwhelming. But let's get into a, few, into a few of the looks. And I'm just not talking about who looked the best because that was just Naomi Campbell. So, settled. And Winnie Harlow and Jordan Dunn being close seconds. I thought they looked the best. Ain't have nothing to do with camp, um, but they looked the best. Um, now, in terms of being camp... And y'all gonna gag at this? Y'all gonna be like, what is Nick and his mind? What is he talking about? Whatever, whatever. But the best dressed for camp, to me, has to go to Mr. And I almost hate to say it because of his recent politics, but it has to go to Mr. Kanye West. Because Kanye West showed up to the shit just wearing dickies from head to toe. Basic black ass dickies. Now that, to me, was the campiest outfit of all because it made fun of the idea of the Met Gala trying to be camp. Do you see what I'm saying? He knew that it was ridiculous for the Met Gala to be trying to be camp, so he's going to wear the most basic shit that you possibly can wear. And that shows up the facade of what everybody, everybody's trying to do the most. Gaga's trying to do, I don't know, whatever she's trying to do all over the red carpet. And it's ridiculous because... That's the facade. That's not true. That's the facade. That's not even truly being camp. And um, that what his outfit just exposes the ridiculous of that because he's like, you know, camp. I mean, fashion is about fashion and camp is about separating the surface from the functional, right? So what can you do to critique that but wear the most functional shit that you have? You know, shit they sell at Walmart. You, He's wearing dickies. What can be more utilitarian than some dickies? Literal workwear. So I thought conceptualist, I thought he actually got it. Because I was like, that's some camp shit. Because you really are showing all these other people that they are fools for trying to make it like they're critiquing this facade, like they're they're being a part of this 
camp sensibility that critiques mainstream institutions when they are actually a part of the mainstream institution. So how do you show that you know that? You just show up wearing black dickies and be like, fuck it, yeah, <laughs> this is it. So I thought, I, I, I really, really liked that. Um, now, other two looks I liked... I liked Ashley. I really liked Ashley Graham's Dapper Dan look with the logo suit jacket and the Gucci hairpins and the Dapper Dan stamp tights. First, it showed humor and sort of like if you were going to, and that is what humor is embedded into the camp sensibility, right? Because humor is embedded in for, for the person on the margin looking at the other person and laughing at them. For thinking that they're better than the person, the marginalized person, when we know that were it not for your daddy's money, were it not for that white skin, were it not from you conforming to traditional gender norms, we the same, bitch. And there's a humor in that. So, and so I thought that Ashley Graham's um, outfit embodied the humor. And I mean, Dapper Dan and the whole logo aesthetic that he created is nothing but camp. Because in the 80s and 90s, labels really symbolized wealth. Now, of course, a lot of black and brown folk didn't actually have the wealth, but they had wealth enough to go to Dapper Dan and get them some to show up and show out. So it's like, okay, so white lady, white man, okay, you can have you know, one Gucci thing on your shit. I'm going to show you, I have a hundred Gucci shit, Gucci labels on my jacket. Okay, well, now what you going to say? Now what you going to do? That is camp. So, um, you know, I, I thought Ashley really pulled that off in a humorous way. Uh, so I like that. The other outfit that I loved, um, it was like she was the best dress for a lot of people, but I think I saw it a little bit differently. The other outfit I loved was Cardi B's burgundy Tom Brown number, with the padded train because you know she a former stripper i'm a former stripper and i basically the first thing i thought when i saw her outfit i thought her outfit evoked every strip club vip room that i've ever been in from the dark decor to the couches and stuff like that i thought she could just lay there and people she you know the big old um puffy thing she could just lay it on the red carpet and they could have brought some men out and put some little black chairs you know on her dress and had some strippers come out and give lap dances and it would have looked just like any strip club vip room in any town america whatever so i thought that that was because that's another part of camp too the camp is about like you're gonna you're in on your own joke you know how people see you so you're gonna show that to people before they can point it out and you're going to like parody yourself before somebody can make fun of you for it so I thought that that was um, really great. So I thought that she won the night on a night that was otherwise completely underwhelming. Probably one of my um, least favorite Met Gala red carpets since I've been um, following it. And I've been following the shit since it wasn't on no E. You weren't going to see it on TV. It wasn't no internet. It wasn't no Twitter. It wasn't no Instagram. It's like the best you could get is to... Um, like just read the article in the Washington Post, the New York Times the next day. Maybe go find you on a New York Post or a Daily News, and they may have like a picture gallery. Maybe in next week's People, they might have a couple. It was like it was like cobbling shit to get you were cobbling your mat. You weren't seeing no mat in real time. You were just putting it all together. But that was, um, you know, I'm a young 
but as a young gay boy, what else I have to do? So anyway, uh, that's been was always one of my pastimes. But one more outfit I wanted to mention um, before moving on is um, Lena Waithe's icon now iconic jacket. She comes with the iconic. She comes with the statement backs, right? I mean, I mean, it's like business in the front, and she's giving you all sorts of politics in the back, whether it's a huge rainbow-ass cape, or in this case, you know, her jacket had the lyrics to I'm Coming Out written on it. And the whole time I'm kind of wondering, like, does she need to give Nile Rodgers royalties to that shit? So that was kind of in the back of my mind, but anyway. And then um, the jacket on the front had many gold busts of legendary drag mothers like Pepper LaBeja. And then on the back, it had an embro- the embroidery message, Black Drag Queens Invented um, Camp. Because y'all know black folks, we be making up words. So um, I thought that that was a really great way of pulling attention away from the Sontag essay and back toward the original source material. And I thought she was the only one that did that. like Because it was almost like, and she did it through words, which was appropriate because the Sontag essay is in words. You know, I mean... Yes, there were like the the cast of Pose and Billy Porter who looked great, you know, it was fabulous. But I saw that as theatrical. Like I thought that is an outfit that could have been like Broadway at the Met or something like that. It, it just wasn't camp to me. Um although it was wonderful and I love Billy Porter and and everything like that. I'm just talking about when we start thinking about the theme. And um but I thought it was perfect for um Lena Waithe to do that, but then it got me thinking just in general about the relationship of black people, not just black queer people, but just black people in general, to a camp aesthetic. To the point where I think I might just go ahead and get me a t-shirt that says black folk inventing camp, period, with a T. Um, And what I mean by that is that, you know, the earliest enslaved Africans in this country had to become acutely aware of the facade of the white people who so-called owned them. Like, the only way to have any sense of self-worth was to know that these people weren't shit, but for whatever reasons, they were, for whatever laws or whatever, they were pretending like they was, were the shit. But we knew, we knew, we, we knew you, you ain't shit. So that in and of itself is sort of a camp sensibility in being able to see through that facade of like, this ain't right, this is not right, this is just pretend, even though it has very, very real consequences, this is some constructed, made-up facade shit, because you ain't no better than me. Even though you so-called own me, you ain't no better than me. You ain't no better than my mama, you ain't no better than you, your family, ain't no better than my family, they aren't worth any more than my family. But you had to live under that system. But I think in order to survive under that system, you had to be able to see that facade. You had to be able to know that. Otherwise, you you would just, um, you know, you would just, you really couldn't exist. And you see this attitude manifest in even some of the earliest Negro spirituals, like the one, like everybody talking about heaven ain't going. So, because we knew it was a damn hypocritical lie for all these white folks to be espousing Christian values, brotherhood, mercy, blah, 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 and to be enslaving and abusing people at the same damn time. That was hypocritical. We saw through that facade. So what do we do? What we always do. 
We wrote a song about it and then sang it to their clueless faces and they ain't even know. Everybody talking about heaven ain't gone. And they said, oh, ooh, the darkies can sing. The darkies can sing, sing, darkies sing. Everybody go, go, talking about heaven ain't gone. And they just, oh, we love the sound. They're so talented. They're so musical. They're so Everybody talking about heaven ain't gone. And they still just totally get it. That's camp. That's seeing through the facade. That's challenging the mainstream in a way that the mainstream doesn't even know it's being challenged. That's being able to to critique something in such a way that the other person doesn't even know they're being critiqued so that you don't have to suffer any um, so that you are, are not, don't have to suffer any sort of consequence for it. If you just go up and say, you white motherfucker, I know you're not talking about no heaven and doing good deeds and shit like this. You have my ass in the fields and I'm working all this time. You don't give me no water. Cotton be hot. Cotton be cutting my finger. Fuck you, motherfucker. Nobody, you can't do that. But what you can do is stand up there with your best voice, with your best Sunday best voice, and say, everybody talking about heaven ain't gone. Do you see what I mean? And then I also think about it, taking back to um, Plantation Days, like with the dance, the cakewalk. Because the cakewalk was developed by um, enslaved Africans, basically making fun of white people trying to dance all fancy, trying to be all sadiddy. So, you know, and the way that they, white folks dance all stiff and all this kind of stuff. So the enslaved Africans, we were up there like, okay, we're just going to make fun. Ooh, they do this like they do like that whatever making fun but in an irony in the type of irony that has come to define black life the white folks like the dance and the white folks were just dancing along the dance the white folks wanted to learn the dance and i mean the cakewalk remained one of the most popular american dances well into the early 20th century now that's some camp shit and again that's a matter of doing a critique and the people don't even know it. In fact, they want to join in on the shit because they're so clueless. But we know. And we know. And our knowing is the key to our survival. So that's how this shit isn't just... When you start talking about camp and you start talking about survival strategies of minority communities, this shit isn't just something to do on, a, on the first Monday in May. This is some serious-ass, survivalist-ass shit. And... To not acknowledge that aspect of it is just, um, like I said, it was just all it was just all wrong. It was just all wrong from the start. So I'm glad it's over. I'll wait. I will be waiting till next May. Maybe by this time, Rihanna would have dropped her album so she could be back in the Met again without. You know, she ain't show up at the Met because she didn't want every little can- other every little microphone on her face. Where's new album? Where's new album? Where's new album? Because Rihanna would done beat some bitches up with the microphone by the time she got all up all up all them steps with everybody asking her about this new album so she was like look i'm just gonna stay my ass home in barbados i just you know got back from this reggae festival i'm just gonna do my thing i do not want all these motherfuckers asking me about my goddamn album so um but like i said i think we'll have rihanna back and that was kind of another issue about the met be quite honest like the star value was not there and like the people we really sorry i touched the mic y'all that we really want to see like we you know beyonce wasn't trying to be there she's like i just gave y'all homecoming chill i'm not trying to go out of the house i have babies if that's not good enough for you i don't know what is but i'm not putting on no dress walking up no steps i just don't give a goddamn right now so beyonce was like that 
Um, and then Rihanna, you know, and I'm thinking those are kind of the people that we really want. And all the other people are kind of A-list, but it seemed like they A-list that we see every day. Like the Jennifer Lopez and the A-list child. The Jennifer Lopez. It's like I couldn't. I everything's all mixed. I mean, she's she's doing too much, y'all. I mean, she's Motown. Now she camp. Now she this. Now she that. She just needs to sit down. Um, and just the other people just like, just regular folks. They were stars. But, you know, it didn't have that big wow factor of somebody that we haven't seen on a red carpet because the thing about Beyonce and Rihanna that makes the Met Gala so great is that they show up to event like you know Beyonce will be at the Grammys or something like that Rihanna will be perform somewhere but they don't be watching them they're not talking to Ryan Sequest and, and Juliana Rancic you know, they ain't walking no red carpets really like that. The only red carpets that Beyonce and Rihanna um, really walk in recent years are is the Met Gala red carpet. So that's also kind of what makes it special. But anyway, I'm sick of talking about the Met Gala. It's just over. But I just had to say my black queer piece on that because I thought it was... Um, it was. It needed to be said. Normally, I don't drag y'all all back to Monday, but I just felt like this needed to be addressed. Um, so moving on, we got other stuff to talk about. This has. Mm, sorry, my voice is all dry. Let me take another red bull real quick, y'all. Sorry. All right. This has been a fucking major epic week for new music by female R&B artists. Like, just the other week, I was thinking, wow, there's not a whole lot of stuff out. And then, like, within a week, there's too much for me to listen to. Like, I still have my good playlist of all the new stuff, so I'm working through it. I'm working through it. Um, So I haven't processed everything. But just, you know, we just got the Mary J. Blige and Nas joint. You know, I like it. I need to get more into it. And I still sort of am like, hashtag justice for only love. I don't know why y'all slept on only love. I thought it was a fantastic single. But y'all did and whatever. And we have to live with our decision. But, you know, so I'm going to try to get into that. Um, The new Fantasia song, like when I first played it, I was like, this don't sound nothing but like, but whip appeal meets you put a move on my heart with somebody doing some purple rain guitars over it. But the more I listened to it, the more I started to get into it. And when I saw the video for it, I really started to like it because it's a beautiful video. Like if you if you don't like the song, just just mute the shit and but just watch the video because it really is a beautiful video. And um, I'm looking forward to her. One thing I did, you know, it did make me seem like she really has a sense of what the sound's going to be. It makes me feel good about what the album's going to be. So I'm looking forward to that. And then, of course, my girl Monica is back with a new song called You and Me. And honestly, I don't know how many of y'all feel like this, but for, like, adult R&B artists, for, like, my old-time people that I want to support and everything like that, it's hard for me to get into their little stream singles because it's like I listen to it when it's out, but then when I stream, I mostly listen to albums, you know? So it's like, I'd be forgetting about stuff. Like, I'd forgotten about Monica's commitment for a long time and then remembered it and played it. I was like, God damn, this is the shit. I love this song. And then she dropped a video, you know, um, directed by Tiana Taylor, who's really coming to her own. And the video's hot and everything. So it's like, M- Monica just released this new thing, but I'm still going commitment but what i really i just you know because back in the cd days you buy a cd single that thing's you know 
size of a piece of sandwich bread. You can't hide that. That's going to be on your table near your CD player. So you're going to play it because it's in your face. You're going to find it. You know, it's going to be in the car. It's going to be whatever. It's a physical thing that you have to reckon with, even if it's a single. And the album is, you know, the same size physically as everything else. So these are things that you, physical things that you have to reckon with so they don't really leave the memory as quick. But, you know, on Thursday when I do re- new release nights and I listen to everything right quick, Friday morning, I'm not even remembering everything that came out and stuff. And then next thing I know, a week gone by and I haven't even played the thing more than once. So that's just a problem I feel about singles, especially for like legacy artists when I want the whole thing and I'm expecting really want to get into a whole thing by them. With new artists, if it's just one song or something, then I might play that a lot because, you know, it's popular and it kind of instantly kind of hooks you know hooks me and i'll play it a lot but like for those singles that you kind of have to spend these ballads or these artists these songs with these artists with giving you real vocals and giving you real instruments and all that kind of shit sometimes i need a second to get into those and just the way that streaming comes i just don't feel like i get to spend enough time with them give you case in point like mary's last album um what was the first song um think of it i played think of it like handful of times at first but when thick of it came out on the album i was like hey dj i'm screaming the shit you know at the concert and everything and even love lesson you know love lesson i may have listened that less than um thick of it when it was out as a single at the concert i thought listen three times you and me so anyway i I hope some there needs to be some middle ground or something like that or maybe somebody just needs to start a playlist of you know the hottest singles not just new releases but of these type album type legacy artists and maybe i could listen to that to get into the stuff before the album finally comes out but whatever um i might report back later on some of that stuff once i get into it but here are my must-listens for the week for people who like female R&B, R&B in general, whatever. Two albums for starters. There's Tink's Voicemails and Ari Lennox's Shea Butter Baby. Now, I've been a Tink fan from way back. She's from Chicago. I used to live in Chicago. And she was like the hometown girl because she just has a, such a sweet voice. And she writes these open and honest songs that are very, it's like almost reading from her diary. In fact, three of her mixtapes were called Winter Diary because they're diaristic. And it always, almost always feels like winter in Chicago. But that's another point. But, um she's just such just such an open-hearted songs and such and such a sweet voice and for a minute she was signed to Timberland and I thought that was just a horrible idea because she wanted just like you know Azora and Martha they don't need those dresses she don't need all that production she just needs you know a good track and something just let her do her thing and I recommend this for people. I know a lot of y'all really stray away from the new R&B artists. I don't understand 100% be honest with you. But I know where you're coming from because you don't like that vibe and be. You don't think like nothing be sounding like a song. You be thinking sound, everything be sounding the same. And I can see where you're coming from. But Tink really gives you those real structured 90s ass sounding songs. And so I think that y'all, if you've been, you know, if you don't really fuck with... um 
new R&B like that, I would give her a try. She even samples Brandy's I Want to Be Down on it. So I would definitely give that a listen. Um, and then this week, we finally get Ari Lennox's debut album, Shea Butter Baby. Now, I ain't know from who the fuck Ari Lennox was until about two years ago during the Essence Festival. It was a night that Mary... Jay curated. She performed on it, and um, Shaka Khan performed on it, and a bunch of other people. But she, she, Mary put all the artists together, and um, so you know, of course, I was late, so I've missed Ari's early ass set because ain't nobody knows she was. She didn't have that many songs, so you know, I, I please, I wasn't even in the auditorium. I was probably still eating some catfish somewhere. Um, but at the end of the night, Shaka closed, and all the artists came together to sing "I'm Every Woman" as an encore. And as they were singing, like, Shaka kept going back over and forth to this young woman who wasn't, I mean, she was not dressed up. She, you know, she was not looking Essence Fest stage ready. Because you know how people be looking on the Essence Fest. Like, Mary would be giving you an entirely new whole, everything. I mean, people dressed for, and she was just wearing, like, some little tank top and just some little jeans and stuff like that. But she was singing her ass off. And Shaka would give her a riff to sing and she would go back and just and she was blowing Shaka away. Like Shaka was really impressed. And you know Shaka Khan is not really impressed by anything. You rarely see if you're a Shaka watcher like I'm a Shaka watcher, you rarely see Shaka generally impressed by somebody. She may tolerate somebody. She may smile at somebody. But for her to actually like be impressed with somebody's talent, that's a rarity. And she was just going back and forth with this young woman. So I'm like, who the fuck is this? So I'm Googling and of course I do my Google um do and find out that her name is Annie. I'm sorry, Andy Lennox. Ari Lennox and that she was signed to J. Cole's Dreamville Records so then I started following her but again it, she was just really singles drip strips I would like them but again I would forget about them and, and all this kind of stuff but she's back in this album I've only been able to give it a couple of full spins but I really think it might end up on one of my as one of my years best I mean it's a warm textured organic soulful album like you really feel like from beginning to end you're on a journey like it's an album album you know you vinyl people right like love to buy it on the vinyl and be flipping it over and doing all the sorts of acrobatics with it and shit to do i can't i'm tired i, I just want this to stream or whatever the, the you know the cd days got me lazy if i can't just drop something in and push a button fuck it i'm not trying to put a needle on some shit and then had got to get up out my seat after my comfortable chair at my age and flip something over just to continue listening to it no so y'all can take y'all can have the um vinyl craze you know <laughs> i'm not doing that but if i was a vinyl person this sounds like an album that i would want on vinyl because it it has that organic full album feel so i would definitely check that out um i'm gonna put a couple of songs on the website craigspoplife.com about because the one joint that's just my jam from the album and you know this is one of those times a lot of times when you first listen to an album you get into the one that's just most popping this might not even end up being one of my favorite in the long run but right now it's a song called bmo and it uses the same sample as faith evans i just can't remember that y'all i just can't boom 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 anyway um another thing you can't find streaming see i hate that shit why is the High School High soundtrack not for streaming? There are days that you want to hear Faith Evans. I just can't. But anyway, I'll put a link up, up for it on my website. Now, two other songs. Like, Shah, this Janae Aiko. Janae Aiko, um, Triggered. She did her motherfucking thing. I mean, 
I love when she does a freestyle track and it's just so much about like being in love, but then you can't stand this motherfucker, but then the motherfuckers could still get I, I it makes me wonder what kind of dick do Big Sean got? Big Sean, Big Sean has like lingering dick or something like that. Cause like for example, he hadn't been with Ariana Grande for years. But then in the thank you next video she wrote by his page that he could still get it. So that's dick with some long-term memory. That's some long tail dick. So, you know, Janae's talking about like, you know, this and that, she, he could still hit it, but she's mad. I mean, just going through all the emotions of that thing where you feel, there's a certain, there's, you know, you can break up with somebody like, fuck you, you know, you did me wrong because I believed in it. And I'm almost mad at myself and believing in it because I knew you weren't shit anyway. So fuck you. Like, it's that kind of shit. There's that kind of breakup song, right? But then there's that real breakup song where, like, you feel like it was, like, your soulmate. Like, you had that meant to be. You had that connection that was beyond anything you felt with anybody else. And then for whatever reason, shit fucked up. I, you know, he fucked it up by screwing some other bitch or something or, like, um, and I mean that as a gender neutral bitch. Um, but like he, I, I'm we're talking about it from a gay pers- perspective. I was not talking about it from Janae, but anyway, that he fucked some other person and, um, or just, or maybe you fucked around or something, or maybe you just got mad and got an attitude and couldn't deal with him or whatever. But there's that connection and this, the sense of loss that you feel when you lose somebody that has really had that deep of an effect on your life. Like, when you look back at that, you can't help but be ambivalent in so many ways. You can't help but be like, you know, I want more than anything to have this person back, to have this person in my arms, in my bed, in my everything like that, even though I know it's entirely wrong and I'm not going to do it because I know it's not going to turn out right. But I'm sort of mad at the universe because why would you give me somebody that is so right for me but then create conditions where we could not be totally together? Like, universe, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you playing with my emotions? It's that kind of love. So Janae Aiko's trigger will give you that kind of feeling. And um, that's that's just one I've been playing over and over and over again this week. But y'all know what my favorite song is this week? What my most played is? It would not, I would not have expected it. Not because I don't like her or respect her talent. I just shit wouldn't have expected it. And I watched the show and knew something was coming. Um, but my favorite song of the week comes from no other than Tamika Tiny Harris of Escape. Her song, I Fucking Love You. I mean, I've always loved Tiny's voice. And we know Tiny can put down the lyric and is still living off them no scrubs. Wrote. She ain't living off them because she got a lot of income screens. But something, she's buying something good. She's living good in some kind of way just from them no scrubs. Royalties. All them kids are living good in some kind of ways from just the no scrubs royalty. Especially after Ed Sheeran had to pay them for that... Um, for him using the bit the, the meddling shape of use. So that's just, you know, that family got all sorts of income streams, but that stream, that's a big ass stream. You know what I'm saying? Um, but this new song, like this has totally transformed me from thinking, you know, of her as a group singer or just a great singer to a real solo artist that I want to hear more from. And it's kind of perfect. Cause you know, tiny Southern as shit. You know, and that's why I love it. I could just listen to Tiny talk all day. I mean, for me, watching Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, I just love that for the accent, for the beauty of black Southern accents. Like between her, Toya, and Monica, I could just listen to them talk, you know, all day long. 
but you know, it's she, it's kind of like a modern take on one of those um, Southern soul songs like Dorothy Moore's Misty Blue or something like that. And she even sings a bit of Shirley Murdoch's As We Lay in the song. And her lead vocal is is moving, it's yearning, it's and it's just so soulful. And the background vocals are also exquisite. Like it's just a moment. So I love that fucking record. Tamika Tiny Harris, I fucking love you. I will also put that on the website, craigspoplife.com. So, um, to check that out, because that really was the surprise of my week. And she's so rich, she wasn't even promoting it, y'all. She's so rich, she was like, um, on Instagram, oh, I know I'm a few days late with this with my single out. What artist you know be posting on Instagram, I know I'm a few days late with it. Every artist usually on Instagram be posting weeks before, my single coming, my single coming, or here's a here's one twenty-fifth of what the single cover is gonna look like. I'm gonna reveal the whole single cover in 25 parts over 25 damn days, or just some ridiculous shit like that. She ain't even post about it on the release date. So that's how chill she is about this situation. But let's make this a hit because I want more from her. I want a whole album. I just want her singing every sad this is not a sad song, but I just want her singing. I just want her more of this type of music. Exactly what she's given there is what I feel like I, I've been missing and what I need. However you want to define it, however you want to call it, that's um she got a, she got one right there. So anyway, that's all for me this week. Thank you so much for listening once again. Now I don't want to be just a stereotypical person, but you know what I'm gonna ask from you right now. You don't gotta send me no money, you don't gotta support no cause. But if you could just, Lord, just subscribe, Lord, and rate the podcast and share it with a friend. Share it with a friend is extra. If you could just subscribe and because you right there listen to it. Like if you could just subscribe. And rate because you know you can subscribe to something. And if I annoy you that much, you can always unsubscribe or just turn the notifications off. But it just makes a big deal in the algorithms. So if you could just subscribe, if you could just rate, I would really appreciate it. If you could share it with a friend, I would be so grateful for that. And I just want to thank you in advance. I want to thank all y'all for your support because it really means a lot. And last week's episode was actually my la- my most listened. To- I was about to say my last episode. Bye, y'all. I'm gone. No, last week's episode was actually my most listened to episode. So I felt very proud of myself and I felt very um, supported by y'all who listened. So I really, really appreciate that. And that's very real. Um, so until next week, you know what I say, what I say every week. Be cool. Be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. (laughs) All right, y'all. I love y'all so much. Bye.